So today we're going to talk about a very important issue that we really should be doing more about in built environment, whether it's in public sector or private sector. And we know something is happening around rising sea levels and flooding, but we don't really seem to be doing enough around it in the, in the planning and, and policy response area, which really is quite alarming. So today on the Placetech podcast, I'm Paul Unger, editor of Placetech, and I'm joined by a couple of experts in, in this field. Paul Sayers, water management researcher, consultant, advises UK government and others on flood risk. And Jeremy Hines from Savills, a planning and development director there. Welcome to you both and thank you for joining. Paul Sayers, do you want to just give us a quick summary of the recent papers that you've written when it comes to England and rising sea levels, please? Yeah, thanks. So we've been working on on issues of flooding and uh, flood risk and um, flood risk at the coast as well as as inland. And we all recognise there's a growing gap between the climate risk we face and the level of adaptation we're undertaking. And there's a real, we've got to address that adaptation deficit as it's often described, and that will get bigger and wider as the future goes on. But we also expect adaptation to be a real central pillar of how we respond to climate change. It doesn't remove the case for mitigation at all. Mitigation remains the core focus. But in that context, as we've seen in the recent COP, uh, adaptation is is a central part of that. And one of the things we looked at recently was um, how we are responding at the coast. We know sea levels are rising around about 16. We've seen, we've already observed around about 16 centimetres of sea level rise since since, uh, 1900, around about. And we know that sea levels will continue to rise to some extent, regardless of how um, successful we are with mitigation, because a lot of it's baked in, it will continue, the sea level will continue to rise uh, in response. We can mitigate how high that sea level continues to rise through mitigation, but there, there, there is already a bit of inertia in the system that it will rise at the coast. And we're quite good at what we call uh, incremental adaptation, which means responding incrementally to our changing sea levels, so adding a little bit of height to the to our defences, for example, in a, in a simplistic way, um, but doing things that are relatively straightforward to do, and that even includes quite major infrastructure investments. But what we're really quite less good at is where there's a transformational change that's required, where we have to respond to changing sea levels in a way that really does change uh, change the system. And we looked at parts around the English coast of where there might be pressure uh, as sea levels increase. And we expect, for example, that sea levels might rise by about a metre, by 2100 or thereabouts. There's not too much uncertainty in that we will get to a metre. It's just a matter of when, not really if we will get to a metre of sea level rise. And we looked at those places around the coast that might uh, be under pressure that they would be very difficult to maintain the existing position of the coastline under those kind of uh, as the sea level rises and we identified around about almost 30 percent of the uh, english coastline will be experiencing that kind of pressure to do something quite different to um, the way we currently manage the coastline as sea levels rise 
Just cutting across there, Paul, I think it's fair to say that understanding what is meant by the coastline, dare I suggest, it's a fluid definition um, on, on the basis that um, it's, it's not just the immediate coast. We're talking also about low-lying areas where um, rivers sort of empty themselves into into the sea. So the vulnerability is 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 probably as great in some of those areas than on the immediate coast. Um, and, um, and and just picking up your point, Paul, about um, the increase in um, sea levels of that 16 centimeters you you um, cited since. Um, about 1900, it's, it's perhaps quite startling to point out that 10 centimetres of that 16 um, is accounted for from the period 1993 to date. So we're seeing not a, not now just a gradual, we can't say it's 16 centimetres over the course of 120 years. No, we're talking an increasingly rapid amount of sea rise. So we might get to the one metre figure somewhat sooner than people anticipate. On both points, I, we're seeing sea level rise increasing in, in terms of rate of increase and we may well achieve one meter or, or, or experience one meter much sooner than people think um, we might even experience more than that by 2100 and also at the coast people think might think of one or two centimeters or even 10 centimeters sea level rise what does that actually really mean or even half meter that's not very much you, you could you could envisage someone saying but at the coast the energy arriving at the coast is is a cube power on that on the size of the wave that arrives at the coast and the size of the wave that arrives at the coast is is around much of the uk what they call depth limited so this, what we experience at the coast is limited the wave conditions we experience at the coast are limited by the depth of water so as that depth of water increases, not too much, the power of the wave energy arriving at the coast is much greater. So what you have to handle at the coast is, is much increased. It's not, you mustn't think of sea level rise like a, um, like a rising water on a lake. It's not, it's, it's not functioning like that. It's, it's bringing with it much more energy arriving at that. It's not quite a, a benign picture. Um, so, so, Jeremy, in property terms, how is this playing out when it comes to things like planning and spatial strategy to um, make sure that we're taking all this into account, if, if indeed we are? Yeah, the, um, the, the volume of the debate on this topic in planning and development um, is deafening by its silence. And um, the, the, the problem we have is that um, people tend to think of problems caused by um, sea level rises as happening elsewhere. I mean, it's, it's a function of the entire climate change debate that it, we, we as human beings seem to be able to castigate this as a problem that's happening not to us, but somebody else. So it's a problem where the Maldives disappear. It was a problem where the deltas around some of the great rivers of the world will be um, sub, uh, submerged and so on. What we're not doing is identifying within our own shores, literally, um, where these problems are going to become manifest. So we have in the UK a very um, um, well-advanced um, plan-making system by which we deal with development. It's well understood, even if it's sort of maligned at times. Um, and um, and I was um, sort of, uh, 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 sort of interested in what are um, our planning systems actually dealing about this. And by way of illustration, I looked at what Warrington 
um, is doing about it. And I did it Warrington for two reasons, and this is not to castigate Warrington at all. Um, but one, that they are coming right to the very end of their current plan making process. So with a fair wind behind them, their current local plan um, should be adopted within about 18 months, might be a bit sooner. And that, that will take Warrington's planners to the period to um, 2038. Um, if you um, word search their plan and look how many times they deal with flood, um, they do it, they, there's 114, 114 references to flood. And, and they have to deal with flood in Warrington because it's built around the River Mersey. So um, Warrington does tend to flood um, and, and, and uh, the, the, uh, the, the flood risk is well identified in that sense. Um, but what is not identified is flood risk caused by um, rises in sea levels. And so when I said earlier that um, what, what is understood to be the coast is fluid and we can't just confine it to, if you like, the immediate point where the Mersey empties itself out um, into the sea, we also need to know what is happening to the effect of, uh, of sea level rises further upstream. Now, um, Climate Central, um, an organisation that was founded about 2008 by scientific community to provide objective evidence on facts um, to contribute to what was then the emerging debate on climate change, produced a plan um, of um, the effects, um, particularly in Europe, um, and um, um, and that, that you can go online to see their, um, their site. It's, it's uh, climatecentral.org. Um, and, um, and if you focus in on Warrington, there's a whole stretch of Warrington that is um, anticipated to be underwater because of directly as a result of um, rising sea levels. Now, the area of land um, that, the, um, that is affected, uh, shown to be affected, vastly extends beyond the existing floodplain of the River Mersey. Um, and no account has been made by the council of the effect of um, annual flooding on the, the new floodplains. So there over 3,000 of the housing that is allocated in the plan is proposed to be built on land that Climate Central identify is at significant risk of being um, underwater. I really find that extraordinary that we're planning thousands of homes on areas that we know are going to be underwater. I mean, how have we ended up at that situation? So there's a few a few things it's probably worth just commenting on there. That, um, so we did some work recently on, on just responding to climate change around the UK coast and, and the scale of the challenge. And that looks around the whole of the coast and that considers how sea level rise will influence flood risk within the within the coastal floodplains. And there are places uh, like London um, that, in fact, you'll protect. We, we, in our paper, we make we don't suggest that London will be underwater so because it's it. In fact, I, I worked on the Thames a project called the Thames Estuary 2100 program. And there's a really strong case for uh, protecting London. So, in fact, we looked out to four metres of sea level rise and still there was a strong case for protecting London. And there are, uh, uh, most of the major cities fall in that category. And what, one of the things that we highlighted in the paper was there are often smaller um, communities, not insignificant communities in terms of scale of size, uh, and, and involving many houses that are more difficult to protect as sea levels increase from a um and the, the benefit cost cases will be less and there's this program of planning around the coast that i'm sure everyone's aware of these shoreline so-called shoreline management plans 
to think about how we might manage our coast in the long term. And quite a few of those suggest in 50 years time, we might realign our coast, i.e. we might change the location of our coast. But very few know how to transition from the current position to a, a, a different position in the future. And there's very few instruments that can support communities in making that change. Very few financial instruments. In fact, the, the Environment Agency have some pilot programs on that currently running now, but there's no real means of engaging the communities and, and supporting them both in a planning way and in a financial way to potentially move uh, move landward. And that, that is definitely a real gap. So is this because the planning system tends to look back and it looks for evidence from the past of what's happening to population, what's happening to the, the need for certain use classes in certain areas. And so you will build that because you, it looks like you need that. Whereas we're, what we're talking about now is planning for the future and having to, to look ahead. Is that? Well, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think that's right. I think there's, there's some, some degrees of truth in that. Um, and I, 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 not surprised to hear from Paul saying that you know, London will be protected. Of course, it will be protected. I mean, um, the amount of investment in London just simply generates its own case, let alone it being the centre for um, political power. But, but, but it seems to me that um, the, the real, the real point behind what Paul has just articulated is that decisions are having to be made about effectively abandoning. Um, certain smaller, so-called smaller towns uh, and and, um, and places. But when we say um, we'll, we'll let we'll let smaller towns um, go, we we're not understanding really what that means. That means not just where people live, but we've got the healthcare facilities where they are. We've got the transport infrastructure where they are. We've got the education systems where they are. You know, you, it's very very difficult to simply say, well. That's only a small place to say 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 people compared to the millions that might live in the greater urban areas and just say, we're, we're not planning for that. But the, the consequences of not planning mean that we might be forced into making those quite dramatic decisions um, still in the context of not knowing what we're going to do about that. So if we say, well, we're going to have to let parts of, I don't know, the far coast go or parts of the Humber Basin go and they'll just be inundated and that's life. Well, how many thousands of houses does that mean? And where are you going to put those people? Um, how are those people going to be compensated for, um, if at all? I think, I think that's, that, that, that's, where, that's where I'm getting confused about this. It sounds like a, a, a very stupid thing to do, to put it in layman's terms, of planning houses in areas that are going to be underwater. I mean, how have Warrington, and presumably they're not alone, as you talk about the geography there, if you look around a, a, a map like that, how have, have the councils got to this position where they are planning that and they're, they're not planning for, for the reality of the future? A part of the answer is must be just lack of knowledge. I mean, this, this is, there's no sort of deliberateness in, in this conversation about people saying they are doing it even though they know it's a bad thing to do. There, there, is, there is a lack of knowledge in the debate. And I think Paul says, or I think that's probably one of the problems we have. Um, the, the other, the other um, factor, which I think is of some significance, is um, the, the lack of a, a national plan, which... It has to give mandatory guidance as to what this looks like. So we we have a system, of, as I said, 
quite advanced system of, of plan making, but it's, it's each local authority unto themselves. There's no, there's no coordination at regional or national level about what those um, allocations might mean and look like. Um, and in the absence of that, and only yesterday we had the, the government announcing the abandonment of um, housing targets um, in response to um, a, a potential rebellion by um, backbench MPs, um, the same MPs who have um, derided the need for regional plan making um, at the committee stage of the levelling up bill. So um, we're, 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 we are genuinely sleepwalking into a problem because we don't have the, the framework for a sensible, coordinated debate about what the, the new coastline will look like, what the flooded areas will be that are most likely to be affected, um, and, um, and how we reallocate our resources, um, either to prevent areas going underwater or to do, as Paul was suggesting a moment ago, to deal with issues of relocation and to deal with issues of potential compensation. Um, and, you know, the, the, the conversation that this, that this is about is bringing to people's attention the need that unless we have a framework, unless we do something now, then actually we might well end up in the circumstances Paul says saying um, that we're seeking to avoid, which is forced abandonment because we haven't actually opened our eyes early enough. So, so are any of the politicians or political parties talking about this? I'm, I haven't detected it, Paul, um, in terms of um, the overall impact of rises in sea levels. There's, there is some conversation about the impact of um, coastal erosion and flooding um, um, that will cause. Um, and I think that's largely because in terms of concept, that's actually quite, a, it's certainly more manageable than um, flooding caused by um, rises in sea level. So I think its short-term answers are relatively achievable there. Um, and in some cases, we know that actually is about abandoning um, strips of land and houses along those areas in, back into the sea because it's just too expensive and disproportionately expensive to defend them. So there's, there's, there's knowledge about that. There's some knowledge about what to do about our um, drainage system to cope with um, pluvial flooding, which is um, eff effectively in shorthand, it is uh, localised flooding caused by um, significant bursts of rainwater um, and, and the existing um, capacity of our drainage system to cope with such um, um, heavy bursts of rain. So there's some understanding of that and there are regional water-based plans that are addressing that. But I'm not detecting um, much conversation, if any, about the impact of the, this third cause of flooding, um, as I say, um, sea level rises. Um, and in answer to your question, Paul, about um, has, has there been anything like this before, I, I think in terms of the, the pace that we're looking at, if we just go back to the overture comment that Paul Sayers said how sea level rises have already taken um, 16 centimetres uh, I've already increased, sorry, by 16 centimetres since um, 1900. And, and of that, as I said, 10, 10 centimetres is since 1993. I think it's the scale and the pace that, that's challenging. Um, and also, um, we have to put into, into the equation that we're dealing with rises in sea level because of the broader issue of, of warming climate. Um, and so the, the, we, it's... it's you know, we, we have to understand why why are the sea levels rising, and effectively, there's two principal um, um, causes to that. One is water expands as, as air temperatures increase anyway, and and secondly, you've got meltwater. So so 
it, it, that's why a lot of it is embedded in. So we can't we can't turn it back now. Um, and um, and and if 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 we're dealing with a warming climate, then actually we're also dealing with places that might not be as habitable um, it, it, tomorrow as they might be today. They just might be uncomfortably hot. Um, and so we've had a conversation about this in terms of you know, what's, what are we doing in terms of our infrastructure, our building regulations and so on to help places now um, continue to be livable in 25, 35, 45 years time. And we're not even getting that right, quite frankly. So um, we might have the ridiculous outcome where we're having to spend billions upon billions of um, our money to defend London, when at the same time, Londoners are saying, I don't want to live here because it's too hot. <laughs> well, yes, I guess there's, there's a levelling up argument uh, to be had, but maybe for another, for another day about um, you know, London and the South East getting the investment. But uh, so, so what's your big ask um, today in, in, in turn? I'll start with you, Paul. I think there is... Uh, a- a, a recognition and a strong focus on, on within government that we need to uh, adapt faster, not not a political party government, but it generally across uh, across the piece of planning, uh, the environment agency, everyone is recognising we need to adapt at pace, and everyone's recognises that that need that we um, that sea levels rising, and that, that's one of the key responses we need to. Uh, respond to and this idea of resilience we haven't spoken much about it now but there's a much stronger focus on, on resilience which includes property scale resilience as, as well as community scale and national scale infrastructure resilience the, the challenge is joining all of which kind of we started with at the start is joining all those pieces up uh, and and actually making it happen not only in this incremental adaptation way but addressing those what really difficult problems of those transformational changes that we need to address and then supporting those that are affected by that uh, appropriately engaging them in those discussions so i think there is a real a seriousness about uh, about it that from what i see across across the uh, across those involved um and there is a real will to try and adapt at pace but it's making it it's making it happen. So the challenge is is that doing it and and and, uh, and and creating those joined up plans and creating those resilient communities and and really having that longer term plan that everyone understands and and uh, that we can follow. That's and just doing it isn't as easy as I've I've just said. It's quite a, comp- a lot of complicated, many conflicts. You know, legitimate conflicts in the, in those discussions that have to be squared. That honest discussion around those is is key. And and that's absolutely right. The um, what what Paul's um, arguing for there by um, using the phrase um, joining up the plans is looking for a a national. Uh, I think it has to be a national framework um, that joins up some of these dots for us, um, or allows local authorities at both um, the level in which they currently operate as well as at a regional level to put place together w- what the uh, regional impacts of these changes will be and how they at a regional level will respond. Um, and and, and it, it's bizarre, it seems to me, that we have a system of plan making that argues at the moment against regional planning on the basis it's not 
a, a democratic, uh, uh, it's not democratic, um, but we do have regional um, bodies. Um, we have regional bodies in healthcare. We have regional bodies um, in the fire. We have regional bodies in our water. So, um, so we, we do have a system of regional bodies and that's largely how the environment agency operates as well. So, so it's, it's, it's beyond my comprehension as to why the government continues to resist the idea, both of having some form of regional framework for, for the planning system, um, but then to legitimise that regional framework by having um, a, a more informed and sensible national framework that deals with some of these big issues. We have, we have something called the national planning framework. I know that, but that does not provide for us a, a, a planning, a spatial element to the conversation that is focused uh, that is the focus of this conversation today. Do, do, do you think if, um, as an idea that we've talked about before, Jeremy, but if there was some sort of office of climate or an office for climate change that was independent and operated in the same way as the Bank of England and really elevated this, treating it like a crisis and drawing up a sort of urgent response in a, a way that crossed planning authority boundaries and things like that it, it, is that scale of, of of response something that 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 might help in a case like this and paul what do you think there is the old truth that uh, risk is probably not best managed at the location it occurs so you can uh, to, to best manage risk it normally means you have to do something in the upstream catchment down the downstream upstream coast or there's there's a spatial element to the way you manage risk in a in a good way so there is risk is definitely spatial um, in terms we have the uk climate change committee and we have the climate uh, climate act of course 2008 and they hold government to task on on adaptation of climate and mitigation issues uh, but there isn't that single uh, planning body if you like I'm, I'm i'm not totally sure which way i fall on this in i work a lot internationally and I see in some countries they have separate climate change and climate uh, or parts of government, and they can end up a little bit divorced from the actual planning on the ground. They can end up a little bit as a, as a lobby group rather than a actually in, really impacting things on the ground. So I'm not quite sure which way it, whether climate should be business as usual, right? It should be part of that core planning action, which it isn't currently, but uh, so I'm not, so I'm not sure which way I lie on if, if it should be a, se a separate planning directorate that really highlights climate issues, or that should be m climate should be much more embedded in the uh, the business of planning. Absolutely, it's a good 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 point, um, Jeremy. What's your thoughts? I, I, I think actually we, we've got an almost ready-made solution to deal with the point Paul says is saying. We have we have a plan-making system. Um, um, which is overseen by uh, an independent body called Planning Inspectorate. Um, and there is no reason why a, a Planning Inspectorate cannot include a team, one of whom is directly responsible for assessing the um, integrity of policies against um, scientific-based um, expectations of what will happen if um, and that's a climate change point. And, and it doesn't matter to me if that, that specific person on the panel treats it as, a, as an extreme issue and, and asks for significant robust testing of the policy framework. 
because these policies are meant to last 25 to 30 years. And so we can have somebody in place sitting alongside every single local authority to ask the fundamental questions, have they robustly assessed the impact of their land use, their spatial allocations against a range of scientific-based um, um, forecasts of what will happen to um, um, land subject to um, uh, flooding by excessive rainwater, um, um, sea level rises, coastal erosion, um, whether they've got, they've got matters right in terms of anticipating the need for open space because of um, um, air temperatures increasing and so on. The, you know, the, the, it's, it's a ready-made list of questions that can be prepared by the inspectorate and, and each relevant policy for spatial allocation can be tested. It was there. It's not a difficult thing to do. Absolutely. Well, in terms of timing and scale, a, a short-term conversation or a snippet of an ongoing conversation in 20 or 30 minutes. Thank you again to Jeremy Hines and thank you to Paul Sayers for joining us. Let's keep trying to bring people to the subject and bring people to the conversation, raise awareness of what's happening, try and influence plans and try and call for the national framework, the you know the planning inspectorate to tool up around this but yeah thanks again hope you've enjoyed that at home and we'll see you again soon on the place tech podcast thank you (laughs) 